afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday, 12 noon on the dot, and we are here to promote and defend public education. And we've been doing that since 1964. So we've got a bit of a history. But what has been very interesting in the last or decade, I suppose, is that the supporters of public education, which are many, uh, they represent, after all, well over 60% of Australian children, uh, they have been getting a lot more coverage in the press about the state aid issue than the dogs ever did before the turn of the century. And in the last few weeks, there has in fact been a whole spate of very interesting articles. You don't find it in the Australian, of course, or the Herald Sun or the Telegraph. No, you find it in the Guardian and you also find some of it in the Fairfax Press. So we're very, very fortunate to have the Guardian and also the Saturday paper to air the problems with uh, public schooling in Australia caused through the diversion of public money to the religious sector, the private religious sector. So we've got a press release on what's been going on in the last few weeks or even in the last week. And Dale going to read press release 990. The Australian press had the educational funding issue. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. This is press release 990. The Australian press and the educational funding issue. The supporters of public education around Australia have been doing a great deal of hard data collecting and research to expose the gross unfairness in the education funding system. Ray Nielsen from The Dogs did this for many years in the period 1964 to 2009, but there was no coverage in the mainstream press and the dogs had to put full-page advertisements in the mainstream papers at their own expense to expose the shenanigans of the private sector. Times have changed and the plight of the public system and the educational future of the vast majority of Australian children are exposed on the international front. Trevor Cobold from Save Our Schools has taken up the data collection and analysis baton and done a marvellous job in the last decade. And finally, the Fairfax Press, Guardian Australia and the Saturday Paper are exposing the effect of state aid to, our, to the private sector on our public systems. In recent weeks, there has been a series in The Guardian Australia, firstly on funding, then on school choice and its impacts. The next is, where is the accountability? Indigenous children bear the brunt of Australia's unequal education system. The final is The Gonski Dream. How can governments restore funding and trust to public education? A podcast comes with this series. So on Monday the 24th of July, The Guardian Australia produced an article entitled Australian Public School Funding Falls Behind Private Schools as States Fail to Meet Targets. And on the weekend of the 22nd of July, in Class Warfare, the Saturday paper editorialised about schools and funding. 
All of these articles expose the quite shocking shortfall in funding of basic resources for the public sector, while the private sector runs laughing to the bank with taxpayer funds. Yet the federal Labor government is putting off making any definite decisions or committing any substantial funding for public education with yet another inquiry. Nothing substantial will happen until late 2024 or even 2028. There is continuing reluctance to confront the greedy private religious school sector and its representatives. The public school supporters like Greenwell and Bonner, who have done all this marvellous fact-finding, research and lobbying, are looking for a compromise with the private sector, namely open enrolment policies. Dogs maintained that no compromise is possible with the private sector. In the last half century, they've proved again and again that they cannot be trusted with public money and that their greed knows no bounds. The time has come to confront them and take over the schools which are more than fully funded to resource standard by taxpayers and make them into public schools. Back to you, Jean. Yes, well, thank you, Dale. The press are quite active on the issue, aren't they? It's a pity that they weren't more active back in the day, in the 1970s and the 1980s, when the dogs were fighting in the High Court the religious liberty issue, which is related to the state aid issue. But if you want to find out more about that, of course, you can go to our website at www.adogs.info. And there was a book written about the High Court case, which you can actually buy from 3CR, The Contempt of Court. But we must press on because the press and what they have had to say in the last couple of weeks is very interesting and Sorrell is going to read perhaps the the best one of all, uh, the editorial of the Saturday paper of last weekend, Class Warfare. Over to you, Sorrell. Thanks, Jean. So as you just introduced for us, I will be reading the editorial Class Warfare. Julia Gillard, Unley High School, was at the Sydney Institute when she said the words that would help destroy the Australian education system. No school will lose a dollar of funding. The Institute is a confection of Gerard Henderson, Xavier College, Gerard Henderson's, a shrine to heckering and pedantry where the world is held in harping stasis by a series of filing cabinets. Gillard spoke before David Gonski, Sydney Grammar, had conducted his review of school funding. Her words ensured his scheme to address inequality in education could never properly be realised. More than a decade on, funding to schools has never been so unequal. Governments spending on private schools has grown at twice the rate of spending on public schools. In some states, funding has gone backwards. Billions of dollars in overfunding is being given to the schools that need it least. Malcolm Turnbull, Sydney Grammar, helped this division. He capped federal government contributions, leaving public schools to slip further and further behind. He defends this, saying it stops the states from sneaking money out of the system. Scott Morrison, Sydney Boys High School, added his own perversity, topping up funding for Catholic schools and ensuring another wedge was forced into the system. Almost every public school is now funded below the minimum set by Gonski. Almost every private school is funded above it. Teachers are leaving the public system, forced out by Dickensian conditions. In some places where they can, students are following them. 
Australia has one of the most segregated education systems in the developed world. The outcomes on literacy and numeracy are embarrassing, sitting at the bottom of global tables. All of this is by design. The numbers are right there on the funding charts. Private education serves no purpose but to sustain inequality to pass it on between generations. Parents pay to divide children and the state pays to help further this division. The promise at the end is networks and connections and more division. Nowhere else is taxpayer money used so lavishly or destructively. When Gillard said no school would lose a dollar, she was acknowledging a crooked truth of Australian politics. The unfair money given to the rich in private schools is sacrosanct. It is given without regard to logic or need. It is a kickback paid to avoid charges of envy. It is a lie to say private schools take pressure off the public system. In fact, it is the opposite. Private schools take money out of public classrooms. They entrench inequality. They create and maintain privilege. The government is conducting a review intended to bring every student to minimum funding level proposed by Gonski. Its target for this is the end of the decade. In the meantime, state school teachers pay for their own teaching materials. Classrooms fall into disrepair. Children are offered substandard education while others are treated as princelings. The answer to this is simple, but it would require the government to confront one of the most persistent myths about Australia, that it is a classless society. The country's notion of fairness is confounded by one of the least fair education systems in the world. It is like this because it serves the interests of a small group of people in whose hands the majority of the wealth lies. For other, it creates a lifelong disadvantage. It divides the country in two. Gonski laid out a solution more than a decade ago. It was hardly radical. He is a man known for his circumspection. Yet it cannot be implemented while governments pretend they cannot take back money from the richest schools and give a little more to the poorest. What a fantastic well, thank you, so Back over to you, Jean. Very interesting, isn't it? Very interesting. Uh, it's interesting that it's been uh, actually written. Uh, so thank you very much to the editor of the Saturday paper. But we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back to... Uh, Look at another one of these articles from The Guardian that has uh, been, that has been published in the last few weeks. I'd just like to say that it sounds very much like what the dogs have been saying for the last 40, 50 years. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to scream out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. You're listening to the Dogs Program, still I hope, 
And here we have Dale, who's going to tell us how the Australian public school funding has fallen behind the private schools because the states have, amongst other things, failed to meet their targets. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. This article is by Jordan Beasley and it's titled Australian Public School Funding Falls Behind Private Schools As States Fail to Meet Targets. So there's calls for special deal to be struck for Northern Territory, which has the biggest funding gap between public and private schools. Public school funding is falling behind private schools in part due to the states failing to meet the targets set for them six years ago, spurring calls for a special deal to be struck for the Northern Territory, which has the biggest gap. In 2017, when the Turnbull government announced education reforms under the banner of Gonski 2.0, the target was for all schools to be funded to their schooling resource standard, the SRS, a needs-based model designed to provide a baseline education to students by 2023. For public schools, the states were set a 75% funding target by 2023 and the federal government a 20% target. For private schools, it was the reverse, with schools receiving funding above their SRS to transition down by 2029. The federal government has almost met its targets, but the states have not. This is due to bilateral agreements that were struck in 2018 as part of the reforms which saw the 2023 target pushed back for some states. Only the Australian Capital Territory, South Australia and Western Australia have reached or are above the 2023 target for public school funding, according to a Senate estimates brief by the Department of Education. New South Wales recently committed to reach its target by 2025, two years earlier than that under the agreement. Meanwhile, the department briefing shows Tasmania will reach its target by 2027, Victoria by 2028, and Queensland is projected to reach it by 2032. The Northern Territory has no commitment to reach the target. We've had now an entire generation of students who've been to public schools that have not been fully funded to meet their needs, said Karana Haythorpe, the president of the Australian Education Union. The AEU is urging the federal government to increase its share of public school funding to 25% in the next schools agreement, given it has greater revenue raising power than the states. But that figure should be raised further for the Northern Territory, given it is well below other states in meeting the needs of its students, the union has said. In the Northern Territory, public schools have reached just over 80% of their schooling resource standard, while private schools are at more than 97%, according to a Department of Education internal briefing. Effectively, you've got a whole cohort of students who are missing out on funding in the Northern Territory, yet there are huge and compounded needs there, says Haythorpe. This year, the Northern Territory Government met 59% of the resourcing standard for public schools and the Commonwealth contributed 21.5% according to the department briefing. In 2018, the Federal Government had contributed 23.5% of the Northern Territory's SRS, the highest of any state or territory, but this has been trending downwards since the Federal Government decided to set the cap at 20% for all states and territories. It's our view that there has to be a special deal for the Northern Territory, says Haythorpe. 
the Education Minister Jason Clare has committed to work with the state and territory governments to get their public schools to 100% of their SRS, with a new National Schools Reform Agreement to be negotiated in the next year. Trevor Cobold, an economist and national convener of Save Our Schools, agrees that the federal government should increase its contribution to the Northern Territory as long as the Northern Territory doesn't then reduce its own contribution. This has happened in the past. From 2013 to 2021, Cobold said the Northern Territory government's funding to public schools dropped by more than $1,500 per student, while federal government funding increased by just over $2,500. He said several other states also took the opportunity to reduce their funding in real terms after the Commonwealth started to increase its recurrent school funding after the Gonski Review. This included Victoria, he said, which reduced its state funding per student in real terms from 2012 until 2016. In the next agreement, the Commonwealth has to ensure state and territory governments actually increase their funding, Cobold said. Haythorpe also said state contributions are misleading because most states, under the current agreements, are able to factor in 4% of additional costs not originally deemed part of meeting the school resourcing standard, including school bus costs and, in some instances, early childhood learning. According to the department briefing, this was worth more than $2 billion in 2023. The real cost to the country is actually 4% more than what state and territory governments say they are doing, she said. The New South Wales Education Minister, Prue Carr, said the state government had pledged alongside the federal government to get its schools to 100% of the SRS. The truth is that public schools have been underfunded for far too long, she said. A spokesperson for the Victorian government said the state would reach its school resourcing standard as planned by 2028. And the Northern Territory government was contacted for comment. Back to you, Jean. Well, many thanks, Dale. Uh, it's, um, it's a sad thing, isn't it? Everybody's saying that this is what is wrong. Jason Clare sets up an inquiry and talks about the end of the decade. So it's business as usual with the Labor Party. The Lib Labs. What a choice. Anyway, we'll have a bit of a break now and come back with some more interesting material. Oh, oh, oh. 
that's a blast from the past. That is Robert Ely's group, the Scholar Cantorum, singing Laudate Dominum. Uh, the dogs, by the way, are not anti-religion, of course. Uh, we are just anti-division children on the basis of religion. But Andy's got a very interesting article. Where's the accountability? Indigenous children are the ones that are suffering the most in the current situation. Over to you, Andy. Thanks, Jean. Where is the accountability? Indigenous children bear the brunt of Australia's unequal education system. In the Northern Territory, the failure to implement the Gonski funding reforms has left students with the fewest resources further disadvantaged. When schoolteacher April drives past one of the local private schools in Alice Springs, what sticks out are the green manicured lawns. When she looks out the window at one of the public secondary schools where she teaches, she sees a brown weed-choked oval. It's like a metaphor for public education in this town, says April, who has asked that her real name not be published. It's parched. It's neglected. In the decade since the Gonski review into the funding of Australia's education system, state government funding to public schools in the Northern Territory, where 39% of the student population is Indigenous, has fallen by 7.75% in real terms. In Western Australia, it has fallen by 5.6%. It doesn't reflect the area of need, says Tracy Woodroff, a Warramungu Larritcher woman and an education expert at Charles Darwin University. If we're having standardised assessment, which is what NAPLAN is, that reports students in more remote areas are performing less well than students in urban areas. Where is the accountability in catering then for the students who have the most need? Education is a right, so surely students are entitled to the best education that we can provide for them, and not just because they have enough money to pay for it. April is at pains to stress that the town's public schools offer benefits that cannot be measured by funding levels or NAPLAN results. Our kids have the experience of attending a multicultural school and mixing and learning with lots of different people, she says. For those that do go on to university, they do very well because they're able to self-manage and function in flexible and diverse environments. Teachers in the public system go above and beyond to enable students to reach their potential with the available resources, she says, but that effort cannot entirely compensate for the basic inequity of the system. Schools divided along race lines. In their book, Waiting for Gonski, How Australia Failed at Schools, Tom Greenwell and Chris Bonner point to Alice Springs as a glaring example of how funding divides schools by class and race at the expense of Indigenous students in particular. At the public middle school in Alice Springs, 62% of the 347 enrolled students are Indigenous and 53% speak a language other than English at home. Only 5% of students are in the top quarter of socio-education advantage and 58% are in the bottom quarter. Socio-education advantage categorises the educational advantage a student brings to their studies based on socio-economic status and parents' education. At one of the town's private schools, which performed well above the public middle school on 2022 NAPLAN scores for students in year 7 and 8, the demographics are quite different. At the private school, 80% of the 547 students are non-Indigenous and 16% speak a language other than English at home. Almost a third of students are in the top quarter of socio-education advantage and 15% are in the bottom. The public school receives $31,834 for every student in government funding, compared with $26,848 at the private school, which also gets $9,382 for every student from parent contributions and fees. 
But Greenwell says a core recommendation of the Gonskipi report was to provide additional funding for each Indigenous student and for schools in regional and remote locations to try to prevent students with a low socio-educational advantage being concentrated in the public education system. Are we doing that? No, we're not, he says. Nor has the government put in place policies to make private schools more accessible to people who cannot afford fees, he says. 83% of Indigenous student enrolments are in public schools, compared with 65% of non-Indigenous enrolments, according to the Australian Curriculum Assessment and Reporting Authority, ACARA. A system that reinforces inequality. The division in Alice Springs is a microcosm of the country. In 158 of the 200 most educationally disadvantaged schools in Australia, the student population is more than 50% Indigenous. In more than half of those 200 schools, the figure is above 90%. Australia's schools are the second most segregated along socioeconomic lines in the OECD, with 51% of students who experience socioeconomic disadvantage attending schools with students from a similar background. According to OECD analysis, students experiencing socioeconomic disadvantage who attend schools with advantaged students on average perform the equivalent of three extra years of schooling in science tests. Over the past 20 years, April says, the schools in Alice Springs have increasingly self-segregated as private schools have expanded their facilities and reputation. They're able to attract more middle-class families and then it becomes self-perpetuating. Other families will choose what looks like stability and opportunity for their kids, she says. Another teacher who worked at an Alice Springs public school until last year, speaking on the condition of anonymity, calls it an apartheid-style system. It's a system for the haves and a system for the have-nots, he says, and that's only going to reinforce inequality. Engagement isn't just attendance. Woodroff says the funding inequity is exacerbated because Indigenous students are stuck in a system that doesn't meaningfully engage with them. Teaching and assessment is in standard English, the third or fourth language for many students, and only 2% of teachers are from a First Nations background. Over time, children within a school get a reputation. It's, oh, they don't come to school, they're not good learners, they can't speak good English, she says. Woodroff says efforts to engage students are often misguided plans instigated by non-Indigenous people. She recalls one instance where children in remote areas were collected from their homes and brought to school to try to improve attendance rates. It's the wrong point of view because engagement isn't just attendance. It's social, it's emotional, and it's intellectual engagement, as well as physically being there, she says. The president of the Northern Territory's Education Union, Michelle Ayres, says the problems of disadvantaged schools are made worse because the Territory government, which was contacted for comment, funds its public schools based on attendance rates rather than enrolments. This completely ignores the fact that it takes more money to engage kids who aren't attending, not less, she says. So in every sense of the word, it is an inequitable funding model because it takes money away from those who need it the most. Some are taking it upon themselves to fix the huge gap in culturally relevant and accessible education for First Peoples. Kara Peak remembers entering the classroom in Broome as an eight-year-old. Until then, she had been at a public school in Melbourne, not the fanciest place by any means, but still a world away from remote WA. I was a year or two ahead of classes, she says. I was blown away. As a child, I was cognizant of the quality of education my cousins weren't getting in comparison to me. Frustration at the system prompted the Yawaru Banuba woman to co-found Saltwater Country, an Indigenous-led program that aims to improve outcomes for students across remote parts of WA through workshops led by Indigenous educators. But her efforts were also being stymied by funding shortfalls. 
Saltwater Country loses a bid for a government grant the day she speaks to Guardian Australia. I am so sick of hearing people talking about the Indigenous problem in education, she says. Put your money where your mouth is. Check cultural bias and think about why you aren't funding us. We need substantive funding to Indigenous-owned and controlled organisations delivering for Indigenous people. For peak, the stakes are high and personal. I come from a community with the highest child suicide rate in the world, she says. This is literally life or death. We want kids to think about what their dreams are, not what has to be done to put food on the table. This is part three of a series exploring how successive governments have failed to make Australia's education funding fairer. Next, what can be done to redress the balance? Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you so much, Andy. In, uh, it's always the children who are the most disadvantaged who, who are suffering greatly in our, this beautiful country of ours. And we're going up to the New South Wales Teachers Federation, which is a great group. They always, um, they've always been fighting for public schools and they still are. And here is a very interesting um, speech given to the New South Wales Teachers Federation by Peter Garrett. Remember Mr Garrett from Midnight Oil? He was the Minister for Education back in the Gillard government <laughs> back in the day. Yes, well, uh, what's he got to say, Sorrel? Over to you. Thanks, Jean. One nuclear sub could fund SRS to 2040. For the cost of one AUKUS submarine, the federal government could fully fund the schooling resource standard for public schools up to 2040. Music legend, activist and former Labor Education Minister Peter Garrett told the Federal Federation's annual conference. In keeping with Federation's long and proud history of involvement with the peace movement, conference delegates voted to continue to work with the anti-war, peace and broader union movements to expose and oppose the threat inherent in the rise in militarism presented by the AUKUS Australia, UK and US alignment. In his speech earlier, Mr Garrett sided with former Prime Minister Paul Keating, who labelled the deal for the eight subs under the AUKUS Treaty the worst decision by an Australian Labor government since former Labor leader Billy Hughes sought to introduce conscription in World War I. My initial reaction was that AUKUS stinks, Mr Garrett said. Closer scrutiny of the sketchy details confirms it stinks to high heaven. And it is, as I've said, one of the biggest, most costly and risky decisions short of committing a nation to war that has ever been taken by any Australian government. Mr Garrett told the conference that for less than half the price, we could buy off-the-shelf conventional submarines, which are more than adequate for the defensive task. And for less than the price of just one submarine, the federal government could be funding the SRS schooling resource standard for 13 years of school for students up until 2040, he said. As for employment, it's looking like around $18 million per job to build them, which is pretty good. It's not. It's a scandal. Each submarine will carry around the equivalent of three Hiroshima bombs of radioactive material. Where will these floating radioactive monsters dock? 
the people of Port Kembla know about where they were thinking of having them dock, what protection will be afforded defence personnel and citizens who live nearby and further afield. If ever built, successive generations will have to store and control large volumes of high-level weapons-grade nuclear waste, for which there is currently no, repeat, no comprehensive or prudent plan to safely manage. Mr Garrett reminded delegates that it was the anniversary of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and that Australia is effectively bypassing the international disarmament framework based on non-nuclear powers not embracing nuclear, which the nation has supported and been a part of for the past 55 years. It is fanciful for current ministers to maintain that Australia will act in good faith in relation with our stewardship of weapons-grade nuclear materials and observe all of the proprieties required by the International Atomic Energy Agency, given that the current administration simply can't define the future actions of any subsequent government, he said. Now, the Liberal National Party has always harboured the desire for costly and unsafe nuclear power, and such is their insecurity and need for bravado, some have even argued for nuclear weapons in this country. Imagine Barnaby Joyce as Defence Minister. Need I say more? Mr Garrett called this time as Education Minister in the Gillard Government one of the most satisfying of his public life. Formally building relationships with this union and with the union leadership and to see how important what you do is every day for every single family in this country means a great deal to me and I remember that fondly, he said. Back over it's to you. Interesting. It's a pity that he didn't take on Gillard and, and uh, everybody else in the Catholic Church about no school losing a dollar back in the day, but still... It's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting take on on the uh, education funding question. But we'll have a um, bit of a break because we're off to uh, America and India with Jeff. You're listening to Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Well, you're still listening to the dogs and uh, we do like to be international in our interests and Jeff is going to take us over to the United States but also to India. Over to you, Jeff. Thanks, Jean. And we're going to start out with uh, Donna Ravitch's blog, of course, and this time we're going to North Carolina, where the GOP has passed a bill to increase the charter funding in enrolment. I'm just going to give you a summary of it. The Republicans in North Carolina hold a supermajority in the state's general assembly after a renegade Democrat announced she was switching parties. That legislator, Tricia Cotham, betrayed the people who voted for her, thinking she supported abortion rights and opposed vouchers. After switching sides, she voted to ban abortion and support vouchers. With a supermajority, Republicans can and do override Democratic Governor Roy Cooper's vetoes. In their hatred for every public, the Republicans voted to fund capital expenses of charter schools, even though they are also passing legislation by declaring charter schools are not public schools. Notably, they also voted to allow low-performing charters to expand. Nothing equals funding failure. Republicans want more kids in failing charter schools, their private schools. 
there's a lot of stuff going on in North Carolina. It's all bad for public education. Currently, charter schools must secure their finance, their own buildings. State and local taxes pay for the operating costs of the charters, but not their capital needs. Expanding private schools at the expense of public schools is the way things are trending in America. And these corporates who are building education are really keen to back up their arguments with statistics, but they can't really seem to come up with anything that's peer-reviewed. What they tend to do is they tend to fund right-wing think tanks and they incorporate them into well-established universities like Sanford. And there's an article by Peter Green here, retired teacher, who contributes to Forbes in, in Diana Ravitch's blog on the 24th. He writes, Over the past two months, headlines have declared that charter schools are outperforming traditional public schools based on a new study from the Centre for Research on Education Outcomes, also known as Credo, which is Latin for I believe. But a critique from the Network of Public Education suggests that the results are being overblown. Credo is housed at Stanford University, but appears to be associated primarily with the conservative Hoover Institute, also housed at Stanford, with large chunks of funding coming from the pro-charter Walton Family Foundation and City Fund, Mm, Walmart. Uh, Credo's report highlights differences between charters and traditional public schools in days of learning. But days of learning doesn't actually mean days of learning. Instead, it's a metric that Credo invented back in the 2012 paper as a way of rendering standard deviations of test scores more accessible to the average reader. By dividing one standard deviation in test scores by the 720 days between 4th grade and 8th grade tests. So... A 0.01 standard deviation translates to 5.7 days of learning. Credo finds charters come out ahead by 16 days of learning for reading and 6 days of learning for maths. That translates to 0.011 standard deviations and 0.028 standard deviations over traditional public schools. But is that a remarkable difference? To answer that question, the Network for Public Education turns to another Credo report. In reading, charter students on average realise a growth in learning that is 0.01 standard deviations less than their TPS counterparts. This small difference, less than 1% of a standard deviation, is statistically significant but is meaningless from a practical standpoint. Differences of the magnitude described here could arise simply from the measurement error in the state achievements tests that make up the growth score. So considerable caution is needed in the use of these results. In maths... The analysis shows that students in charter schools gain significantly less than their virtual twin. Charter students on average have learning gains that are 0.03 standard deviations smaller than their TPS peers. Unlike reading, the observed differences in average maths gains is both significant and large enough to be meaningful. In both cases, however, the absolute size of the effect is small. In other words, when a study found charter schools behind traditional public schools by that amount... Credo found the effects meaningless and small. The uh, NPE, Network for Public Education, also faults the study's volume two for being selective in its choice of charter management and organisations to include in the study. In particular, NPE notes Credo did not include Charter Schools USA, which operates nearly 100 schools. The Michigan-based Leona Group, which operates 58 schools, and Pearson's Connection Academy, the second largest national chain of online charter schools. Just these three chains of the several left out of the study, would potentially have large effects on the results. The report points out that credo methodology has been criticised by scholars in the past 
and that Credo research is generally not peer-reviewed. Credo's report engaged in misleading reporting of its own findings, but continues to use a flawed methodology, as scholars have repeatedly shown when reviewing prior Credo reports, argues the Network for Public Education. I reached out to Credo for their response to the report. Uh, if they reply, it'll be added to the post. I don't think that we'll be hearing from them very soon. But the dogs would like to add their own potential review of the Credo acronym. And whilst I applaud the use of Latin, but we would like to use one ourselves, you'll have to work it out. It's businesses underhanded legal loopholes, schools having income taken. You can make of that what you will. Now we're going to turn our attention to a report on the Indian education system. This is by Dr. Shalini Borkar. Dr. Shalini Borkar is a research fellow at the Centre for Research into the Education of Marginalised Children and Young Adults at St Mary's University, London. And this is a report she uploaded to the Observer Research Foundation, which can be found online, and the report dates to the 21st of July, 23. And it's called Public Perceptions on Education Provision, The Case for Reforming India's Unequal School System. I'm going to have to summarise, it's a very long article, but I highly recommend looking it up. So she, she reads on, uh, The 2021 Global Education Monitoring Report, Non-State Actors in Education, Who Chooses, Who Loses, hereafter called the GEM Report, published by the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organisation, focuses on the role of a wide range of private non-governmental providers and funders of education, and related support services such as textbook publications, school lunches, transport and technology. The report highlights the expansion of non-state actors, private corporations, philanthropic foundations, NGOs, civil society and faith-based organisations as they increasingly participate in and influence nearly all aspects of education. The comprehensive report is particularly pertinent to India, which has a substantial number of non-state actors in its education sector and about 40% of students in private schools. Analysing the GEM report in the context of India's education sector offers key insights amid the country's continued efforts to provide high-quality, equitable education to millions of children. This issue, in brief, assesses one specific data point from the report pertaining to the public perception of the responsibility to provide school education and what this implies for the state of education in India. I'm now going to skip forward, uh, because, it's, again, it's a long article, to the section on Indian school education context. The contextual exploration of the questions of the low support for public provision of education necessitates a thorough understanding of the key characteristics of the Indian school education system. School education in India is a massive enterprise. As of 21-22, India has a school student population of about 265 million. There are nearly 1.5 million schools, of which 74% are in government and government-aided category, and 26% are in the private sector. However, a disproportionately high number of students, 35%, are enrolled in education institutions in the private sector. In urban regions, more than half the student population in the compulsory years of schooling are in private schools. The overall percentage of student enrolment in private schools grew exponentially from 3.4% in 1978 to 34.8% in 2017. The problematic aspect of the high percentage of students enrolled in private schools is that it translates to private, meaning personal, funding of a child's schooling. There are a wide range of private schools providing schooling to children from various income groups. 
This diverse spectrum of private schools, ranging from high fee-paying to low fee-paying ones, leads to a highly divided private school sector. Towards the bottom end of the spectrum are the schools that charge a monthly fee of around or below 500 rupee, while at the higher end are in elite private schools that charge around 100,000 rupees. In between these two ends are a wide range of private schools with varying fee structures. The government school sector is also diverse and includes schools run either by central or state governments or by other government bodies such as municipal corporations or village councils. Furthermore, there are also hybrid government-aided schools which are privately managed but which are partly funded by the government. While this is an oversimplified classification of schools and disguises other complexities and aspects of categorisation, such as the medium of instruction, examination boards and subcategories of school management, it serves the purpose of this brief to discuss the equity implications of the diversity in school education provision. And they go on to show a pyramid where the extremely rich are at the tip of a pyramid and, as you can imagine, upper middle class, then lower class and poor classes in generally public schools and the very poor in public schools only. Uh, such divisions lead to the corresponding fragmentation of the student population. The household's affordability decides the child's position within the hierarchical schooling structure. This position, or in other words, the type of schooling provision, has been proven to have a direct bearing on the quality of education a child in India receives. As such, the child's socioeconomic status ends up being a decisive factor in determining their educational experiences and is likely to impact the child's higher education and employment outcomes as well. A hierarchical, unequal schooling structure does not provide students with a level playing field and potentially leads to unequal educational and employment outcomes from the segmented school student population. The associations between household income, type of school, education quality and resultant impact on the child's future necessitate a closer look at the low-fee private schools that have proliferated since the early 90s. 40% of students enrolled in the private sector study in low-fee schools, which are also called budget schools because of their low monthly fees, normally around or below 500 rupee. These students predominantly hail from low-income families and would have otherwise accessed government schools. The extant academic literature on low-fee private schools evinces no consensus on the advantages or disadvantages of this category of schools. Proponents of such schools notice benefits while opponents highlight its demerits. Despite these polarised views and lack of concrete evidence of benefits outweighing the disadvantages, parental demand appears to favour enrolling their children in, in such schools. This demand can be attributed to parents' perception that private schools, even low-fee ones, are more advantageous than the available government school options. This suggests that these parents do not consider the government as a sole provider of school education for their children, even though there is little information on the long-term advantages of attending a low-fee private school in terms of higher education and employment opportunities for the children. Many in the middle-income groups and most of those from affluent high-income sections have already switched to private schools, indicating that these population sections do not rely on the government as primary provided school education to their children. Such hierarchical education system and the resulting segmented student population imply that not all children receive equal treatment. This is in direct violation of a child's constitutional rights. It also violates the 2009 Right to Education Act, which guarantees every child the right to education and stipulates that an education must be of a satisfactory and equitable quality. However, in reality, millions of children fail to get what they rightfully deserve access to quality education. Furthermore, when parents choose schooling alternatives that require drawing from their family's limited or scarce resources, 
They are essentially seeking a recourse from the private sector rather than holding the government accountable for not providing quality education to their children. Irrespective of the diversity in school education provision, education that a child receives needs to fulfil the humanistic, social and economic aims of education. This alone can ensure that both the individual and social benefits of education are realised to their fullest potential. In addition to policy action, this will require an ideological shift that challenges the notions of inequalities deeply inscribed in the common psyche of Indians. Such a shift should both begin with and result in critical questions around why Indian children are not treated equally. This may bring about a change in public perceptions that if all children are to be treated equally, the way forward is to entrust the government as the primary provider of school education. Just an excellent article, and again in the Observer Research Foundation website, dated from the 21st of July, Dr Shalini, S-H-A-L-I-N-I, Borka, B-H-O-R-K-A-R, and I highly recommend uh, full reading. Anyway, back to you, Jean. Well, we always like to end our program on a high note. So off we go to our great state school of the week. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the school. week. Great state schools. State, state schools. schools. School are of the week. Schools. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's great state school of the week is. Orbost Secondary College. Orbost Secondary College is located in East Gippsland and I'm going to read a little bit from its website. Respect, Resilience, Responsibility. In 2012, Orbost Secondary College and the wider community celebrated 100 years of secondary education in Orbost. With earlier levels of schooling available at the Orbost State School or nearby schools of New Morella and Jaramond, it was not until April 1912 and after much campaigning from parents and other notable community members that Orbost Higher Elementary School was opened. Mr Richard Trembath was appointed the new head teacher of Orbost Higher Elementary School and was assisted by Miss Olga Ernst. The senior class consisted of 26 pupils and the junior class 16 pupils. A limited curriculum was available which included lessons in Latin, arithmetic, algebra, geometry, geography, history, drawing and advanced English. From these humble beginnings, the past 100 years has seen many advances in the provision of education for their students. The school buildings have seen great changes and expansion, the use of technology has been ever advancing and the breadth of the curriculum offered has kept abreast with current expectations of education providers. Today, Orbost Secondary College has modern, state-of-the-art facilities while still retaining some of its original charming architecture. What's not changed is the desire and commitment to offer a quality education to the students. At Orbost Secondary College, they pride themselves on being a caring and progressive school where students are encouraged and supported to achieve their best. They aim to provide a high-quality, diverse education, fostering positive skills and attitudes for lifelong learning. The college provides a sequential and comprehensive curriculum, which aims to recognise the different needs and abilities and interests of all students. 
With a student population of approximately 230, they're able to treat students as individuals and support them in their academic, social and physical development. The support structures include a strong welfare team, experienced course and career counselling and an experienced, committed and highly professional teaching and support staff. The physical setting includes buildings and grounds and creates a stimulating, healthy environment for students, whilst their strong connections with the community ensure that their students live and learn in a caring, supportive environment. Now some facts and figures from the Akara My School website. So their enrolment at the moment is 224 students with an ICSIA value at 928 which is well below the average of 1000. Only 4% of students have parents in the highest income quartile. There are 14% of students with parents in the second highest income quartile but there is 26% of children whose parents are in the second lowest income quartile and 56% of students come from the poorest 25% of the community. So really a school with many disadvantaged students and with 3% speaking a language other than English and 11% Indigenous students. Recurrent grants, the Australian Government gives 1.14 million the Victorian Government, 4.46 million. Fees and parental contributions come to around $141,000 and other private contributions comes to around $67,000. It costs the taxpayer $26,251 per pupil and the capital grants are $5.2 million over three years. And despite such a low ICSIA value, their kids' NAPLAN results are just fine. So congratulations, Orbost Secondary College. You are our Great State School of the Week. Well, congratulations to Orbost. And uh, our time has come to an end, so we just need to remind you that if you want to find out more about the dogs but also about our, all the information that we've gathered over the years, you can go to our website at www.adogs.info and uh, from Dale, thanking Dale, our producer, and Andy, and Jeff, and Sol, and uh, all the rest of the people who aren't with us this week. It's bye for now. Says Joe, I didn't die.
standing there as big as life and smiling with his eyes says joe what they can never kill went on to organize went on to organize from san diego up to maine in every mine and mill where workers strike and organize it's there you'll find your You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.